0: Good morning, everyone. So, how does the day find you? Are you warm? Are you comfortable in here? Is it not too hot? No, 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 that's good, that's good, that's good. Just checking. Um, Special thanks to Shenny and Louise for filling in for Steve. Um, Most of you know he'll be back on deck next week, am I right? Most of you know I obviously don't, um, but thank you guys, it's been a blessing. Um, we need to, just, just a, a few things before we open up the word. Um, uh, we need to pray, Jim, Jim's in hospital, Jim Blunston's in hospital, um, Jan is not well this morning, um, I'm just checking the brain, the memory bank. It it's, doesn't always perform well. That's why I have this thing, this hand. Um, we'll pray for those guys. We need to be incredibly thankful. Women, Emily had baby girl this week. Ah, now who knows the name? Anybody? And Ada. That's it. Ada. How many Adas have you met lately? It's ADA, isn't it? Yeah, that's an old name, isn't it? It's a great name. I haven't met a lot of ADAs of late, um, so uh, uh, that is wonderful news. We need to keep we need to keep the Trigg family. Many of you may not know them. Um, in your keep them in our prayers. Uh, they they lost their son this week, um, and some of you in this fellowship are close to that family. Um, and I'm sure there's much more. But let's just pray, shall we? Father, we just thank you for your your great love for us. We thank you, Father, for your presence within our lives. We thank you for the hope that um, you place within our hearts. And we just pray this morning um, for those people. We ask especially for the trug family, Lord, who no doubt are so full of questions and and struggling at the moment And we pray lord that they would hold tightly onto you and you would minister your love and your your precious presence to them at this time guide them father through this difficult time and and we know lord that you never get over these things but lord in your grace and your mercy you change us and you journey with us and And you reveal unto us uh, just who you are in this. And I pray that these would be days where this family would find great comfort and strength in you. Lord, be with Jim, be with Jan. Father, we thank you that your presence likewise would be with them always, but especially today, that they would know your comfort. And we pray, Father God, for your healing hand upon their bodies, Lord. Uh, Bring your restoring strength to their lives. And uh, we just thank you for them. We thank you for Jim. I know, um, I know uh, Lord, he will be testifying of your goodness even right now in that hospital bed. And pray, Father, that uh, you would lead him and guide him as you, as you bring your healing strength to him. Uh, comfort, Jan. And, uh, Lord, in the days ahead, as, uh, as tests are done, we thank you, Father, for a good report. And we want to bless you and thank you, Lord, for a little Ada. And um, just thank you for the work you've begun. And, and it's amazing to see, Lord God, and to know uh, uh, that you are the giver of life. You are the one, who, Father, who goes before each and every one of us and orders our steps. And we just pray for this little girl and the life that is before her, that you would indeed uh, go before her and, make her life a great blessing not only to her family but Lord wherever you would lead her in this journey that you have begun her on bless Wim and Emily father and their families and uh, thank you for this in Jesus most wonderful name we pray we pray now Lord that you would bless your word to our hearts as we open up the scriptures and thank you father one and all for us being able to be in this place and speaking to our hearts and uh, pray you'd uh, and bless us we pray in that wonderful name, amen. Amen. Um, I just have to briefly, quickly, I um, uh, don't know if uh, um, Russ mentioned the Israel trip to you. Uh, I just want to let you know again, we are looking at, um, if you weren't here last week, um, it, it's, it's, it's become apparent that many of us are not going to be able to make the trip, which uh, kind of changes the whole dynamic of, of, of the of the trip, as far as you know that stuff, money goes. So we may well be looking at. Um, if you weren't here last week, we may well be looking at pushing it back 12 months. Um, I thought this was. I thought this week gone was the last week of August. I found out this morning it's not. Um, and so I'm going to. I'll, I'm going to. We'll, we'll make a decision over the next seven days as to whether or not um, we'll be doing that. At this stage, it's looking highly unlikely. Um, everyone I've spoken to has been very gracious, some of us a little disappointed, but, um, but you know, it's September already, isn't it? This year, and next year will come fast. Um, so I'll keep you posted, uh, but we will have to make a decision in the next week, I believe, or so about that. Um, you are well? Yeah? Good. Uh, let's, let's open our Bibles. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. If you're a visitor here this morning, we are making our way through Romans. Um, we're in the third chapter, and uh, it is our practice, if you're not regular, to have communion at the end of our service. And so, excuse me, and so... Um, we always pray that as we consider God's word, we would be preparing our hearts to gather around the communion table. And so um, allow him to minister to you. Um, we are sharing things this morning that for most of us in this room, it is purely revision, but it is, it is the most important revision. And, um, and for some of us, we may have never heard this before. Um, but let us, let us see what God will say. Agreed. All right. Romans chapter three. Have I missed anything? Anybody? No, I haven't. Excellent. Um, so in the opening in the opening chapters of Romans, mankind has been brought before the courtroom. ...of a holy, righteous God. That's, that's what these chapters essentially are doing. They are placing us in the courtroom before God's, the judge's presence. And Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, this is where we're picking it up this morning. Verse 21 begins a whole new section in the book of Romans. Up until this verse, this is one of the most important verses in the Bible... Up until this verse, the whole world, the whole world... In fact, let me go back again. Uh, Up until this verse, what the Scriptures have been painting is a picture that is less than pretty, right? And I'm sure you've all been feeling it as we go through, as, as the story is being unfolded. Less than pretty. It is a picture of the absolute state of sinful corruption that is the heart of every man, woman and child. Now, do you like that statement? Did you come along to church to hear that? Maybe not. But that's what Romans, that's what the Apostle Paul has been been drawing. The picture of the state of corruption of the human heart. And verse 21 brings us to this point where the whole world is proven to be or shown to be profoundly lost, separated from the holiness of God. The declaration has been this, that all people... Please hear this. And I know you know this, but the declaration has been that all people, whether morally good or morally corrupt, whether it is a life that has been lived according to strict religious rules or not, the self-righteous, the moralist, the traditionalist, the formalist, the pacifist, I could go on and on. The person that has given their life, sacrificed their life for king, country and God and all those sorts of things. It doesn't matter, no matter what or who a person is, no matter what or... Let me say that again. No matter who or what a person has done or said, we are all equally condemned by our own sin. That's what Romans has proven. Sin, we know, separates us from God who is absolutely holy, absolutely righteous, for sinful man, hear this statement. For sinful man can no more come or have a living close relationship with God. Sinful man can no more come into the presence of God than he can stand on the surface of the sun and survive. We understand that, don't we? That's what Romans teaches us. And so up until verse chapter 21 of, of, of sorry, verse 21 of chapter Did I say that right? Verse 21 of chapter 3, all people are presented with a deadly dilemma. How can, here it is, here's the question. How can people being profoundly corrupted ever hope to make, or ever hope to have a right relationship with a holy God? How can people who are profoundly corrupt ever hope to be right in the sight of a holy god that's the question of romans chapter 3 can you remember can you remember being a child and being caught red-handed by your parents anybody Well, you all perfect little angels who never ever stepped out of line we're too old to remember? Well, it happened to me regularly. Um, but I... Here's the thing. Here's one, just one account. And it's, and it's the lowest scale. It's the lowest scale. It's, it's a, I can remember being at the shops with my mum. And you kids today, this will not resonate with you at all. But I can remember being at the shops with my mum and saying to mum, I wanted a packet of sprinkles. You know what? Sprinkles. Now every kitchen has got sprinkles these days, right? Every cupboard's got sprinkles these days. It wasn't back then. We're talking, we're talking early mid '60s, right? And I remember being at the shops wanting these sprinkles, and Mum said no. Um, and then you know what? I can remember. Mum walking down the aisle and and me holding myself back and taking that little packet of sprinkles and slipping it into my pocket. Dreadful kid I was, you know? I can remember that clear as day. And as soon as we got home, shops were around the corner from us, as soon as we got home, mum walked inside and I mysteriously disappeared up to the backyard And I hid behind the wood heap. Do you have wood heaps anymore? I hid behind the wood heap and started eating them as fast as I could. I can still remember the delight. I can still remember the excitement of ripping this packet open and just forcing these things into my face. They were all over my face. All over my face, right? And at that moment, I can still see it. I can see mum coming around the corner of the wood heap and catching me red-handed in the act, right? And I can still see her, quite frankly. I can still see her looking down at me and very calmly, but also very clearly unhappy and saying, did you steal those? I can, that's, all, that's where the story ends. That's all I can remember. I remember my mum saying, Do you, did you steal those? Well, what could I say? Here's the thing, what, what could I say? There I was guilty with all the different coloured food dyes from all of those sprinkles spread all over my face. What could I say? I had nothing to defend myself with, could I? There's the dilemma. That's the dilemma for mankind apart from this is what the bible teaches us apart from jesus christ the whole world is standing with nothing to say before a holy righteous god nothing to say now less we become too discouraged at this point, and you thought, Why have I come to this church this morning? Lest we become too discouraged this morning, we have come to this point here, and I've said it over and over again. This most important verse, verse 21 begins with what does it say? It says, But now. But now. That but now turns the corner for mankind. That but now, as I said earlier, is probably two of the most important words that are written anywhere in the scriptures. But now, read it with me, will you? But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's what my new King James says. Another translation would say, But now, God has shown us a way to be made right with God without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets a long way back. But now, but now, something crucial has changed in human history. The thing that none of us could do, the thing that none of us could live up to is God's perfection. It says that perfection of God, did you notice in the verse, has now been manifested or has now been made known, it says, apart from the law. In other words, what it's saying is to every single one of us in this room, it's saying there is a path. There is a way to the righteousness of God which does not require me to keep the law myself perfectly all of the time. There is a way to God that does not require me practically to be perfect. It says, this is it, even the righteousness in that verse 22, even now verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. It says, for there is no difference. So, but now the righteousness of God is available, it tells us, and it doesn't depend upon my efforts. It doesn't depend upon anybody's efforts. It cannot be earned By obedience, it can't be realized by your own morality. It can't be. It can't be experienced because of my church attendance. No, none of that. None of that. What does it say? It says it is verse twenty-two again. It is even. I want you to read these carefully. It is even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and on all notice who believe. Believe for there is no difference. What's he saying? There is no difference when it comes to someone being accepted by the Holy God. There is no difference between the vilest sinner and the person who is lauded for the nobility and their highest principles of morality. There is no difference between them in the sight of God. We must see, this is what Paul is saying, we must see, every single one of us, we must see that our attempts to being righteous, our attempts to be right before God, everything we do in our own strength, it all accounts to a big fat zero. Zero. A zero. And remember, remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said in Matthew chapter 5. He says, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, we see it in the fifth chapter, verse 48. He said, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, therefore you have to be what? Perfect. You have to be perfect, he said. Not just perfect. You have to be perfect even as my Father in heaven is perfect. That's a high bar, isn't it? That's an incredibly high bar. In fact, that's a bar that is so high you can't see it where it is. So when we read, but now, but now there is a righteousness. You know what righteousness essentially is? We keep using this word. It means to be right with God. But essentially what it means, sinless perfection. That's what someone who is righteous. Sinless perfection. So, but now there is a righteousness, there is sinless perfection, and it is available to you and I through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is teaching. He then, if you, if you hear that and you know that, let me say it again. It is available to you and I through faith in Jesus Christ. See, when that becomes real in your heart, that's when hopelessness dissipates and you rise in glorious, well I don't know how to say it, you you rise in glorious praise of of your God. Righteousness is available to you. Sinless perfection is available to you, to every single one of you who believes in the atoning work of Jesus Christ and it can be found nowhere else. That's why we should be excited about these verses. That's why this is something that should stir our hearts and cause us to leap and rejoice and praise his name. That's what it should do. I'm not telling you to do that now, but you're, happy, you're welcome to do that right now if you understand what this really means. Sinless perfection has been made available to you if you believe in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. What does he say in the next words? He says in verse 23, Why? For all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Again, that's the reality we must understand. If we're going to grasp the enormity of what Paul is saying and the absolute magnificence of it for you, we must understand the reality. Not one of us has ever attained to the glory of God. Now, some will come closer than others, right? It's a bit like, like jumping, it's, like, well, it's a bit like being maybe, maybe 20 miles out to sea, right? All of us. Can you picture all of us 20 miles out to sea? Well, I better go a bit further. Some of you look healthy. So let's picture us 50 miles out to sea on our boat. And for whatever reason our boat sinks, it goes down. And there all of us are now in the water at 50 miles out to sea. What are you going to do? You know what? Some of you are going to drown on the spot, you know that? So some of you are just going to be so full of panic and so full of fear, you're just going to go down to the bottom and it's going to be all over. Again, did you come to church to hear this? I don't know. But most of us are going to start swimming. Most of us are going to start heading towards the shore. I'm not going to make it. I'm looking around the room. Can anyone swim 50 miles? By the way, it's a rough day. <laughs> it's a rough day. There, You are swimming to a strong current. And there are big waves breaking over you all the time. It's a rough world. You know what? None of you are going to make it. You're all going to die. (laughs) Isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely? (sighs) This is the thing. Some of us may be more righteous than others. Some of us may be doing many good, righteous things than others. But you know what? None of us is perfect. None of us is perfect. None of us are going to make it ourselves. None of us. For all, what does it say? Have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Again, can I say it? That's the reality that you must understand. None of us attain to the glory of God. Again, some come closer than others, but we all come a long way short. And hey, let me, be honest. Let me ask, you, ask you to be honest. Can anybody argue with that? Can any of you argue with that? I don't believe you can, because I know you can't. Has anyone lived a life of sinless perfection or even come close to it? every single moment of every single day? Have you never had a thought that betrays you? Or betrays the pure righteousness, the holiness of God who created you? No, no, none of us. Of course not. So this is the, this is the brilliance of, of God's salvation. This is the brilliance of it. So justification comes only through faith in Jesus Christ Who gives us right standing before God. It can, here's the thing. It can only be received. Obviously, it can't be earned. It can only be received as a gift. It can come no other way. What does it say in verse 24? Being justified. Notice the next word. Freely by his grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What a glorious thing it is to be justified by God. You know, we often say that to be justified by God means to be living or seen by God just as if you had never sinned. That's a good way to remember it, isn't it? Justified by God. I mean, God now sees you just as if you had never sinned. Or you could put it this way, and I like this probably better than that, is that God now sees you as someone who has always obeyed him. Someone who has always obeyed his law. You see, He sees me as someone who has now fulfilled the law. That's why I like to see it as someone who obeys his law. He now sees me as someone who has fulfilled his law. That's what it is to be justified. His law. You go to the Ten Commandments. None of you have lived to the Ten Commandments. None of us ever will. But now God does because of what Jesus has done and by you placing faith in what Jesus has done, he now sees you as someone who has fulfilled the law, in the eyes of the perfect law of God, you who have placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ are viewed by Him as faultless. That's the Christian faith faultless. That's why you must be justified. Every single one of you, you must be justified. Stop and think about it. You have always obeyed the law as far as God is concerned. You must be justified. Why? You must be justified so there could be no charge brought against you by the commandments of God. And because there, please stay with this, and because there has been no, now no charge brought against you, you cannot be condemned by your sin. And because you are not condemned by your sin, most importantly, most importantly, you are now granted eternal life. Why? Because you are righteous. You are in sinless perfection. <laughs> Look at it like this. If, if, if that doesn't resonate, it should do. In Jesus, a transaction has been made. We gave Jesus our sin. He took our sin upon the cross. And with that, Jesus took also law's sentence for sin, which is death. The soul that sins must die. That's what the Bible teaches us. Why must it die? Because it's separated from God. And because we trusted Jesus to do that for us, we are now viewed as righteous. That's the gospel message. That's the gospel message. His response to our faith is to give us his perfect record in obeying the law. He's the only one that's ever done it. And righteousness will always, according to the scriptures, be rewarded with eternal life. That's why Romans chapter 8 and verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the most wonderful thing about God's justification is that it's free. Isn't it, Christian? It's a free gift. So read with me verse 24 again. It says, But being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God set forth as a, here's a big word, as propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. I'm coming back to this. Yes, Jesus' justification or God's justification is a free gift. It's given by God's grace, it says there in that verse, which means we don't, can't earn it and we certainly don't deserve it. But it's a gift that was given at great cost to God. And the cost to God is expressed in that word, propiti- propitiation. It's a word that carries the idea in the context that it's used here of propitiation means to satisfy God's holy law by meeting, by meeting the just requirements or just demands. And again, the demands of the law against sin, well, Ezekiel chapter 18 again tells us, the soul that sins shall die. Now, here's the thing. This, this may help us. Remember, remember Romans is using the imagery here of us all sitting in a court or god's courtroom right so let's let's try and see it from that perspective god is the judge of the universe is he not is he not yes he is and god is just is he not is god just nobody wants an unjust judge let me tell you that nobody does so, for God to be just, He cannot overlook sin. He cannot merely disregard sin or, 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 or even forgive sin simply because He takes pity on someone or simply because He likes someone. See, you can imagine a judge operating that way, can you? You know, if a judge in our legal system was operating that way. Um, Imagine it. Imagine how chaotic things would be. Imagine who would be walking free on our streets today because the judge took a liking to someone and said, OK, you can just go. I think, I think you, probably, you probably were didn't mean it and you're probably an OK guy, so off you go. No, a judge can't do that. A God has to be just. A, 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 sorry, a judge has to be ju- just. He must judge sin. There are consequences to it. No, this is what a judge does. A judge will render a decision based upon whether or not the prosecution has proven that person to be guilty or the defence has proven that person to be innocent. And the sentence that the judge will then give is according to the predetermined law. Isn't that right? So the judge's only job... This is the imagery that's given to us here. The judge's only job is to be just and to render a decision based upon the evidence. Remember the little boy caught in the backyard with the sprinkles all over his face? That's the judge's only job. A judge cannot now show mercy just because he likes someone, right? If that happens, I'll say it again, then there will be no justice at all. No justice at all. Now, that's the imagery. So think about God. Can he be both just and merciful at the same time? We want him to be just, don't we? We don't want murderers not being held account for it. We don't want Hitler going free, do we? Is anybody in this room that wants Hitler to be free? spared the consequences of his action? No, no. We want God to be just. So to be just, God, I'm going very slowly for a reason. To be just, God cannot overlook sin. He cannot merely forgive sin, I'll say it again, because he takes a liking to someone. His holiness, hear this, God's holiness requires that sin is judged and that the sinner is condemned. If he did not, guess what? God can't be holy. If he did not, God cannot be holy. If he lets unrighteousness go unpunished, then he is not a holy God and he is not righteous. And that means we're all in trouble. Because we've all got sprinkles over our face. Every single one of us. But the Bible, here's the thing. But the Bible does tell us that God is both just and merciful. But how can that be? That's what we have to reconcile this morning. How can that be? How can he be? Well, we're told. And it's so beautiful. We're told in verse 25... It is by setting forth Jesus as propitiation by his blood through faith. His perfect sacrifice met the just requirements of God's law. By his self-sacrifice, Jesus appeased God's wrath against all sin. And it's an awesome thing to think... If you would for a moment, as Jesus was lifted up upon that cross and the sin of all humanity was poured upon him. It's an awesome thing to think that the Holy God fired down his wrath upon his son for me and for you. We don't understand it, do we? We can't enter into it, can we? The wrath of God. I I, I simply say that what Jesus experienced upon the cross was an eternity of separation. Jesus experienced hell for you and I. That's what we're taught. He fired down his wrath upon his son. His perfect, holy son for me, for you. He paid the penalty for all sin. And by paying our debt... Our sins, please hear this. And by paying our debt, our sins were removed as if we never committed them. That's the wonderful thing about our salvation. And it says, in doing that, he, this is what we read, he demonstrated his righteousness because in his forbearance, that is in his patience, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Previously committed. Are you tracking with this? So in other words, God has not yet or had not yet. We're looking at the sacrifice of Christ. God had not yet judged the sin of those prior to Jesus who had trusted in the coming Messiah. Why? Because at the cross, it says, in his forbearance, that means in his patience. For at the cross, those sins were paid for. Then it says, God did this, verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of those who have placed faith in Jesus. Through Jesus, God was able to completely judge and condemn sin. He set debt that it demanded. He removed it from the guilty sinner and gave them righteousness in its place. So what we see here is that what God has done, he has judged sin and he's been able to be merciful as well to those that were guilty of that sin. I hope you understand the enormity of that. Because if you don't, let me take you back to the courtroom. Let's go back to the courtroom. God has found us all guilty of sin. Every single one of us. And he has passed the penalty of death upon every single one of us. He is just. That's the justice of God. He cannot let sin go unpunished because he is holy. If he lets it go unpunished, then God is not holy and God is not God. He is just. But then we see this. So can you see him sitting upon the bench? He has passed the condemnation against all sin. but then we, and, and, the, and the sentence, which is death. Then we see him rise. I want you to see this. He rises from his bench. And he comes down from his lofty position as judge of the universe. And then he comes around and he stands in the place where you and I are standing. And then he accepts that sentence himself, upon himself. He is merciful. He is both just and he is both merciful. But that's not where God leaves us. He doesn't leave us there. He justifies us, as we saw. He credits us with his righteousness as if we have never sinned, as if we have always obeyed him. And then we leave that courtroom with his perfect record, his righteousness. All that he has done, all that is his becomes, it becomes yours. It becomes ours. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians Chapter 5 and verse 21, he declares the overwhelming reality is for he, that is God made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You hear that verse? That is Jim's favourite verse. It's a favourite verse for a reason. For he that is God made him, that is Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to become sin, that we, that is us, might become the righteousness of God in him. Favorite verse, right? It's almost as powerful as the but now that we're looking at. You see, now I don't pretend to understand or pretend to have fully explored the depth of this inexpressible reality I don't but to know that I've been liberated to know that I've been set free I've walked out of the courtroom Paul had us all in that courtroom but because of what Jesus has done I am now able to walk out of that courtroom completely delivered wonderfully rescued and it simply sets me free sets me free to praise him To praise Him. To praise Him. That's all I want to do. That's all I want to do. Is praise this God who has done it all for me. Do Do you know these things this morning? I know. Look, I know again, this is revision. But again, you may be here today and you may never know in these things. Do you know these things to be true this morning? Despite all of your human weaknesses, despite all of your failings, do you know without any doubt that you are righteous before a holy God? Do you know that? You have to know that. You have to be justified and able to walk out of the courtroom a free man or a free woman. You have to know that. And if you don't, you can. You can know that. If you're a sinner who needs forgiveness, God simply offers it it to you as a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Please realise he stood in your place. He stood in your place. He received your guilty verdict and he took your penalty and all you and I have to do is accept him as saviour. That's it. And you can go free. Not just free, but free as a righteous man or woman in sinless perfection. Has only one destiny that can't be taken away from you. And that's glory. That's the presence of God. So I'm saying to you this morning, if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you're still trying to do it yourself, I just encourage you. Trust him. Trust him. Accept his forgiveness and be free. Your life will never, ever, ever be the same. Amen, Amen. that 's why this book is the book of revival you know if, if look, i I said a lot of things today, but what God says here stirs the heart. it really does because you know I went from stealing sprinkles to doing a lot worse things you know, and I, I was hiding not behind wood heaps, but i was I, It got bad, it got dark, until the day I lifted my head and lifted my heart to a God who loves me beyond, beyond measure. And uh, forgiveness is the most precious thing in this world. I'm going to um, ask Russ and uh, someone else. These emblems that are coming around to you now. Okay, we know what they are, don't we? They're emblems. In and of themselves, they they hold no mystical power. In and of themselves, they can't do anything. But what Jesus said on the last night that he was with his disciples, when he initiated the new covenant in his blood... When he told the disciples what was really happening, can you imagine what that night was like? They had come to believe that he was the Messiah. And they had some thoughts about the Messiah that maybe weren't right. The disciples were in the upper room, they were celebrating the Passover meal. It was a meal of celebration for the Jewish people that looked back, looked back to the time when God delivered the Jewish people from an Egyptian bondage of hundreds of years of slavery. And we know the story. We know that God raised up a man named Moses and, and called Moses to go down to Pharaoh and to command Pharaoh to let God's people go. And of course, Pharaoh allowed his heart to be hardened. We know the story. He refused to let the children of God go to into the desert to be able to worship their God. He would not do it. But with persuasion, we know the ten plagues that fell out upon them. Finally, a broken man, he doesn't let him go. At the end of the 10th plague, when his son was lost, that's Pharaoh's son, he, he wasn't letting them go, he was just he was getting them away from him. He still didn't understand what was going on. You see, the night before, God had, on that final plague, said that final plague that would befall the Egyptian people had told the Hebrew people that they should take a lamb. And they should take the lamb and they should slaughter that lamb and they should take the blood from that lamb and they should place it upon the doorpost and the lentil of the house. And that blood would be a covering. See what that lamb became? That lamb became a substitute. That lamb was about to die so that the first son of that household could live. He became a substitute. The angel of death passed over the land of Egypt and there was great mourning in that land. Because most of the people did not know that, did not understand that. Most of the people refused to accept and believe in the God of Israel and the true and the living God. But the Hebrew people woke in the morning. They woke in the morning, their children survived. Pharaoh, broken and in grief, says, Get these people away from me. And they left. Now, you know the rest of the story, don't you? I want you to pause for a minute. I want you to think about where the children of Israel lived. They lived in a place called Goshen. It was the fertile area, uh, the, 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 uh, the delta of the Nile River. And all of a sudden, where they had lived, separated from everybody else, all of a sudden... It was like a a ghost town. There was nobody there. But if you went back there, you could have walked through that community and you would have seen every single door. And on that door, think about this. They were told to take the blood. They took the blood and they struck the doorpost with it and they struck the lentil on one side. And then they went to the other side they struck the doorpost with the blood and they struck the lentil. Here's the thing that I didn't tell you. They were told to sacrifice that lamb in the doorway of their home. Now, traditionally, those homes had in the doorway, you know, we have a step into our homes, right, to keep the, to keep the water out, right? The Hebrew people in those homes, they had a little... They had a little like a little hole dug out, a little, a little indentation in the doorway there. And that's where, so I want you to picture it again, that's where the lamb was, sl- was slain and the blood was gathered. Now, can you see that? There's a little pool of blood there. They took a piece of hyssop branch, they stuck it in the blood, I'm going to do it again. They went to one side, they struck the doorpost with the blood and they struck the lentil. They took that hyssop, they put it back in the blood, they stepped to the other side, they struck the doorpost, and they struck the lentil. Can you see what's being there? When they went, if you had gone back into that community, you'd have seen every household. There would have been blood there, and there would have been blood there. There would have been a cross here, there would have been a cross there. And in the middle, there would have been where the lamb was slain. Think about that image. Where else do we see that image? Because years later, God would say to a man named Abraham, he would say, Abraham, take your son, your only son, take him to a place that I shall show you and offer him up as a sacrifice. What a a command. What an amazing command. We don't know what happened in Abraham's heart. This is his only son. The son who he dearly loves more than anything, more than anything, more than life itself. And God, I can imagine that journey. Three days that journey took. I can imagine that journey as God took him to the place where he was to sacrifice his son. I can imagine the struggle in Abraham's heart. I can imagine him asking God why. I can imagine him struggling with the reality of God's love and God's compassion and and God's promise to keep him. And and beyond that, the promise of God to make him a great nation through his son. This is my only son. But Abraham, in obedience, traveled three days. and He came to the mountains of Moriah. And they stopped at the bottom. His son gets off. Abraham gets off. There is a servant with them. Abraham turns to the servant and says, you wait here with the the animal, and we, most importantly, he says, shall return. We shall return. Can you see Abraham? He's a young man. He's not a little eight-year-old boy like our books like to describe, but he's a young man. And can you see the father, Abraham, you know, load the wood up onto his back because they're going to the top of this mountain to make a sacrifice. Abraham's got a knife. He's got a lamp with a flame, you know, to light light that altar. And at some point as they struggle up that hill with Abraham with the wood upon his back, making his way to the top of this mountain called Moriah, at some point, turns to his father and says, Father, well, this is Chris's vernacular, right? I don't get it. Here's, here's the wood. You've got the knife, the fire, but where's the sacrifice? What are we sacrificing? See, he hadn't told his son. Couldn't bring himself to do it. Where, where's the sacrifice? Abraham turns to his son, and it must have been with the most in incredible heart that he says he said, Isaac, God himself will sacr—will provide a sacrifice literally God himself or God himself will sacrifice and so they make their way to the top of the hill and again Abraham, not a boy sorry, I mean Isaac, not a boy but a young man watches his father build an altar out of rocks And then he, and this is the moment he takes his son and picks his son up. Can you imagine it? This old man, and places him upon this altar. And the son doesn't resist, doesn't resist. And in that, and then the father, standing over his son, takes this knife and he lifts it up and he's about to bring it down. And I just, and he's about to bring it down on his son in that moment the voice from heaven speaks and says touch not the lad touch not the lad and in that moment what does Abraham hear? Abraham hears the bleating of a ram caught in a thicket behind him Abraham turns grabs this ram remember it's a ram and places it upon the altar and they sacrifice the altar. And Abraham calls that place what? Jehovah Jireh. Well, literally means Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah God will provide. Or more importantly, God will see. Because God sees, God provides. And he says that this God will provide in the mountain of the Lord. Here's the thing, and I've told you this before. That whole story is clearly a picture of God's provision because you go all the way through the scriptures, and it's not until you come to John's gospel where we see the lamb that God said he would provide. John the Baptist, down by the Jordan River, there he is offering, uh, is baptizing people. And Jesus is there. And on a particular day, John lifts his hand and points it and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And of course, Jesus, the Son, finds himself three years later, being led up Calvary's mountain with wood on his back and lifted up and sacrifice the provision of God for you and I, that you might be righteous, that your sins might be forgiven. That's why the most famous verse in the Bible simply says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe on him shall not perish. That's a consequence of sin. Shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. That's the consequence of righteousness. Everlasting life. The righteous are gathered in this room. You have everlasting life. And those emblems in your hand, no mystical power in them. The power has already, has already come upon the cross. And so on that night prior to this, to this event, Jesus says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. That piece of bread represents Jesus Christ The bread of life. That cup represents his blood that was shed for you. Let's pause for a minute. I've said way too much. Let's pause for a minute and think about that. Are you righteous? Are you forgiven? Are you going to heaven? And if you are, this is for you. To remember him. If you are not forgiven, it is my duty to tell you, you are not righteous. You are still in your sin and you need to be forgiven. You need to be justified. You need to cry out to heaven and say, Lord God, forgive me of my sin. Be my Lord. It's that simple. And you will receive the free gift of God's righteousness. And then this cup becomes all about Christ for you. This bread becomes all about Christ for you. So we are simply going to pause for a moment as the, as the band leads us in worship. If you're a believer, take the cup. Remember what Christ has done for you. If you're not a believer, you can become a believer right now. Ask him to forgive you and take the cup as a family of God. And then come and talk to me. God bless you. Let's do that. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done.